If we want to defeat capitalism, we are going to need a party that will organize working people to fight for the demands that we want and to win socialism. Thank you so much. Uh, quick point of privilege. Quick point of personal privilege. Um, guys, uh, first of all, James Jackson, Sacramento, he, him. I just want to say, can we please keep the chatter to a minimum? I'm one of the people who's very, very prone to sensory overload. There's a lot of whispering and chatter going on. It's making it very difficult for me to focus. Please, can we just, I know it's, we're all fresh and ready to go, but can we please just keep the chatter to a minimum? It's affecting my ability to focus. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. Okay, is there a speaker against name, point chapter, pronoun? Point of personal privilege. Yes. Please do not use gendered language to to address everyone. So the path to a workers' party. Yeah. So, um, I'm I'm not sure if you guys have been following, but it seems like every DSA caucus has come out with its kind of grand electoral strategy vision. Mm -hmm. You know, recently in the last month or two, um, and so we just released uh, ours. And um, I guess to start with, I'll, I'll give a little bit of context about sort of where the debate within the DSA has been, or, you know, maybe a little bit more properly where the debate on the American left has been. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, Please. obviously the key question when you're talking about electoral strategy is what's the relationship to the democratic party? You know, that's the, that's the issue that everyone kind of, um, orients themselves around. And so you've got, um, one wing of the American left, uh, not very present in DSA mm -hmm. that basically says, no, we're, we're not going to run on Democratic Party ballot line at all. Um, that means no Democratic primaries. That means it was a mistake for Bernie Sanders to run on Democratic primary uh, in, in the Democratic primary. Um, you know, that means we should only be running third party mm -hmm. candidates and independent candidates and candidates on an explicitly socialist or, you know, green party, perhaps, mm -hmm. you know, ballot line. So this is like an ultra leftist line. That's kind of the ultra leftist line. Um, within the DSA, that line is not super prevalent. Within the DSA, what has been prevalent is kind of the opposite stance, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, I, I guess properly you could call it the realignment stance. Basically, the idea is we're going to run in Democratic primaries. And by doing that, we're going to drag the Democratic Party to the left you know, by our sustained sort of primary electoral pressure. Um, that stance, you know, is also known as Harringtonism mm. um, because Michael Harrington was sort of one of the more prominent, um, uh, you know, uh, promoters of that, of that realignment strategy. And that is the stance that the DSA has historically been associated with. Um, but the DSA is no longer the same organization that it was. And the old Harringtonites are pretty marginal at this point in the organization. Mm. Um, the people who have joined DSA in since the Bernie bounce are obviously we're all familiar with them. Young millennials, super enthusiastic about Bernie for the most part. Uh, and that means that a lot of them are kind of 
they're predisposed to be ambivalent about Harringtonism because they've seen it not work with the Bernie campaign. They've seen the dangers of um, trying to influence a party that will kind of go to no length, go sort of not hold back when it comes to trying to cock block you, you know, like they'll change the rules, they'll rig the votes, they'll, you know, they'll do all sorts of stuff. And so a lot of people naturally in DSA have drifted away from Harringtonism because they say, well, you know, we tried it and it didn't work. Well, and the whole boomer antipathy thing, probably a little bit. No, I mean, <laughs> yeah, there is a little bit of like, <laughs> fuck you, grandpa. Like, yeah, uh, yeah, your old ways are, are fading or whatever that Dylan song is. But, um, so there's that. And so you've got this new kind of um, effervescence within the DSA of kind of alternatives to um, Harringtonism that are still not ultra leftists in the sense that they are willing to sort of tolerate running on the Democratic mm -hmm. Party ballot line. Um, you had the inside outside strategy, which was formed by Seth Ackerman. But, you know, it, it's an older strategy. It goes back well, well before him. But his Jacobin article on the inside outside strategy, the, a, a new party uh, of a new type, I think is what it's called. Um, you know, sort of brought out into the open a lot of the um, reasons why it's important to take seriously the question of the major party ballot line in this country. And he goes through uh, and kind of lays out, um, you know, it's not as easy as just starting up a new party and running on a new ballot line because there are so many laws in place that skew the playing field towards the major parties in the United States. Mm -hmm. Minor parties have to deal with massive ballot access hurdles, for example, just to give one example. Um, so, you know, his sort of idea is, well, you know, we, we have to, um, we have to be cognizant of the fact that we're going to be running within democratic party primaries and we have to find a way to, um, uh, remain independent as a socialist organization while we're doing that. And mm -hmm. this was kind of refined um, by Dustin Guastella and Jared Abbott in a recent Catalyst article, not so recent at this point, I think, but um, about the party surrogate model. So there's not a, there's not, these aren't out and out different, these two. I would say that the party surrogate model is kind of, uh, yeah, it's a refinement of okay. a lot of what Ackerman was saying okay. in, in about the inside-outside strategy. But um, Guastella and Abbott basically kind of make explicit what, uh, what was perhaps more implicit in Ackerman, which is that if you're going to build um, a party the ballot line is a separate question from how you're constructing the actual party, right? Mm -hmm. The party is not just a ballot line. The party is something more than that. It is a So it's not just a list of issues with preferences on them? Well, no, the ballot line is what shows up next to your name on the ballot, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. like if you are running as a Democrat, it says, you know, you know, John Smith, Democrat on the ballot line. Mm -hmm. And that is the ballot line. That's mm -hmm. what people talk about. And so to get that D next to your name, you have to run in a Democratic primary mm -hmm. and you have to win within the Democratic primary. Gotcha. So that's the ballot line. Um, Guastella and Abbott are saying the ballot line is separate from the actual process of building a party. A party is a membership organization, a party in the traditional sense, in the sense that in the vast majority of countries is still the case. It's a membership organization. You pay dues. Um, you, there are membership standards. You can be kicked out if you disagree with the party platform. The party has a platform. You know, that's yeah, under, I mean, a part is party that we don't have in the States. Right, exactly. In the States, there are no And parties. so, Grossel and Abbott are basically saying, we need to build that kind of party before we start worrying about which ballot line to run on. We need to have a party first. 
Um, and they sort of left it open What in the process of building what they call the party surrogate, um, which ballot line you're going to be running on. Um, and so I think that Gwisellin Abbott's article is excellent, um, but because it is vague on the subject of the ballot line, which you can understand why it's not the question, you know, their entire point is that we're so distracted by the question of the ballot line that we're ignoring what it actually means to have a party, right? Um, a party has has membership, it has a platform, mm -hmm. it has internal democratic deliberation, um, it is capable of fielding and disciplining candidates, like all this stuff, mm -hmm. um, they kind of laid out. But because they didn't specifically pin down where they stood on the ballot line, um, you've had a lot of um, you've had a lot of factions within DSA basically take a look at the party surrogate, say, sounds great. Let's just um, let's just treat that as the old Harringtonite model. And we're going to use the party surrogate to take over the Democrats. Right. So basically we're just, we're just doing the same thing we were doing before. Only now we call it the party surrogate. Right. right, right. Um, and we don't need a separate ballot line. Now we don't need a separate ballot line ever. <laughs> we're, we're just going to be Democrats forever. And that's going to be totally fine. So they're just taking the new trendy terminology, right? Like they're taking the new trendy terminology and they're kind of adapting it to what they already believed, which is that the DSA should function as a leftwards pressure group within the democratic par party. And that's, that's it. You know, like that's, that's the new adaptation. So that's the stance put forward by the collective power network, which is a caucus within DSA. Um, they're not alone. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say that, you know, socialist majority almost certainly, uh, you know, to, if you're going to be, if you're going to be generous to socialist majority, they believe in this kind of herring tonight party surrogate. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be ungenerous, I mean, I think they, they don't even care about that. Like, do they even know really what they're saying? Or are they being... I, I you don't want to speculate too much about how, but I think a lot of so within the Democratic, there's a lot of I mean confusion reigns, in right? Confusion groups. reigns. Um, lots of people are just kind of going with the flow, and there the DSA's leadership stratum obviously is very closely enmeshed with Democratic Party political <laughs> scenes, <laughs> um, in major cities in particular, and so um. You know, you, you've you've got I would say if you start from the right, you've got socialist majority who I think they're just happy to, to just be regular Democrats, you know, like they, you know, they're kind of the Justice Democrats caucus within the DSA. And they're not even thinking about sort of anything so grand as realignment, like they're happy to just run progressive Democrats. Collective Power Network is a notch to the left in that they you know they're they're at least talking in terms of like disciplining candidates and that sort of thing like mm -hmm. they do have a recognition that some additional structures are going to be necessary but they reject the idea that this should be in the service of eventually having an, an independent workers party they say we'll be perfectly fine being democrats forever mm -hmm. um you know that that's end of the story then you've got bread and roses um, which sort of brands itself as a Marxist caucus. Um, and they have been promoting what they call the dirty break for mm. quite some time. And so the idea of the dirty break is... Sounds gross. <laughs> yeah, well, so, yeah, the idea of the dirty break is basically we'll do what the Labour Party did in the UK when it kind of seceded from the Liberals. So, like, you had a group of, um, you know... Uh, kind of like a proto-Labor Party within the British Liberal Party. And it ran its own liberal labor candidates. And eventually it had enough sort of support and it had enough politicians that it was able to split off and just be a separate party, right? Hmm. So that's their conception of what they're advocating. Um, 
But if you look at sort of how they actually talk about the dirty break, um, that is a purely theoretical, eventually, someday, we will have our own party kind mm-hmm. of. And of course, someday never comes. Exactly. Someday never comes. And that's the point, right? Like, You mean de facto, not necessarily the intention, but the problem with that is that it never I, comes? Or do you think it's even the intention? It may. I, I don't know. I think there are, there are plenty of people within Bread and Roses who honestly do believe that, um, that, that, a third party will happen someday or should happen someday. But I think that, you know, it's very easy to, to kind of introduce just enough vagueness into what you're proposing that you water it down to the point that you don't have to ever confront, um, the question of, well, when do we put our foot down? When is enough enough? When have we built up enough support to to secede from the Democratic Party? And if you look at kind of recent articles that have been written by, by Bread and Rose's people laying out the dirty break, mm-hmm. um, they very frequently um, basically boil down to kind of, we're going to run candidates who are independent from the Democratic Party within Democratic Party primaries. How are you going to ensure that those candidates are independent from the Democratic Party? Not stated. Mm-hmm. That that's just not. Yeah, what's the guarantee? What's the guarantee? What are the structures? What, what are the procedures in place to make sure that these candidates are factually independent from the Democratic Party, even as they're running within Democratic par- Party primaries? No, we're 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 not talking about that. Um, if you look at sort of what they envision their idea of the party surrogate to be, mm-hmm. you know, in in one of these articles uh, that they released recently, they say, um, you know, the idea that. This is I'm going back to myself for a moment, but the idea I had when I was reading Guasel and Abbott's um, piece is that the party surrogate is a socialist organization, right, with an internal socialist ideology and sort of membership standards. Um, But when you read Brent Roses, they're saying the party surrogate should be a coalition of the DSA Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other kind of progressive activist groups like, you know, Black Lives Matter and Sunrise Movement and all this other stuff. Some kind of laissez-faire DIY scene. Right, exactly. And so it's like, well, if that's your party surrogate, of course you're never going to have an actual dirty break because like – half your members are just Democrats, right? Like you're, mm-hmm. you're inviting a bunch of democratic activist groups into your party surrogate and they're, you know, going to outvote you when the time comes to effectuate your dirty break. So like what, you know, what exactly, what's the plan for the dirty break at this point? There isn't one, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's pure to my mind, it's pure branding, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and so our article is written kind of as a corrective to this, to say the party surrogate model is a first step And now we need to pin down the specifics Mm -hmm. so that when we're talking about the party surrogate, everyone knows sort of everyone knows the the ground line expectations for how that sort of organization would behave. And basically it behaves like a party behaves, um, you know, in in any other country. Right. So not the Democratic so-called party, not the Republican Party, but an organization that you belong to, that you pay dues in, that you vote um, internally in that you're a member of, you can't even be a member of the Democratic Party. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great point, is that the Democratic and Republican parties, and generally parties in this country, you're not a member, you just affiliate with them, you know, via the DMV when you go to register mm-hmm. to vote, and that's how you are, quote-unquote, are a Democrat. And that's, and that's how the you. state is merged with the party system, right. but also there's no accountability of the, I mean, so not the elected members, or the, the politicians who run as Democrats or Republicans, but the party internal... Um, bureaucracy isn't accountable is it i mean no i mean the democratic and republican parties insofar as they actually exist are um they're they're run by their own politicians right the politicians and the operatives and the consultants control 
whatever legal apparatus there is behind the Democratic Party, which is all the campaign committee, you know, the congressional campaign committees and the DNC and so forth. And all the membership does is decide who gets put on the ballot line, you know, in primaries, right? The quote unquote, the membership, but the affiliate, the people who choose to affiliate as Democrats, um, that's all the power that they have. They don't have any sort of actual power over um, how the party is run and it's, it's platform. And, you know, can you, you know, expel someone from, you know, the part, if you can expel a politician from the party for, for going against the platform, what have you, that kind of stuff is just mm -hmm. off the table. You can't do any of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how do you kick someone out of the democratic? Party? Yeah, it's, it's nonsensical. So, you know, the idea is we're going to have a party surrogate. It's going to be an organization, perhaps like the DSA or, or something like that, but um, it will have the capacity to discipline its candidates um, it will have the capacity to settle on a platform, you know, via democratic deliberation, mm -hmm. enforce that platform, you know, on on politicians and so forth. Um, and it will decide opportunistically which ballot line to use on a case by case basis. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, initially, you're going to be running lots of Democrats because that that is kind of the path of least resistance for um, a left-wing party in the United States is to contest Democratic primaries just because of the way the, the party electorate is set up. But just because it's the path of least resistance doesn't mean it's a viable medium to long-term strategy, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be building the capacity to run in Republican primaries to reach sectors of the mm -hmm. working class that only vote in Republican primaries. Mm -hmm. And you have to be building the capacity to run you know, on an independent ballot line in areas where that makes sense, right? Like and you this should, is, this is where it gets really complicated. Yeah. Well, it, it gets complicated, but I, I think it's not that complicated, right? It's like once you've separated the ballot line in your mind from the party, the party is going to be opportunistically kind of changing ballot line all around the country based mm -hmm. on local circumstances. Um, and each party primary, the Democratic Party primary is a different electorate from the Republican Party primary, you know, and obviously the Democratic Party primary electorate in West Virginia is different from the Democratic Party primary electorate in California and so on and so forth. So, you know, the, the party surrogate needs to be flexible enough to encompass a great deal of experimentation with regard to the ballot line at the local level while maintaining a core platform you know, that, that is, um, that unites everyone that everyone can unite around. Right. And so that's a delicate balancing act because obviously you don't want to be purely opportunistic and just say whatever the local electorate wants to hear, irrespective of the consequences, mm -hmm. irrespective of, you know, how terrible or destructive, um, you know, those, those policies might be if implemented. On the other hand, you can't be too sensitive and you can't be too idealistic. You can't be too brittle. Right. You It'll can't be too, break. yeah, you can't be too brittle. You can't go into a part of the country where you know that the electorate is 60, 65% mm -hmm. in favor or opposed to a given policy and insist on not. <laughs> unless you don't want to win. Right. Unless you don't want to win or unless you've decided that that part of the country is just not worth your time. Um, so, you know, that, you know, it's a, it's a delicate, um, balancing act, but I think if if we're going to be serious about running or trying to construct a party that can encompass the entire working class, we have to be having these debates internally. And this is, I think, why the the question of running on the Republican ballot line um, is so anathema to lots of people in DSA who are who profess um, sort of an understanding of the fact that. Um, 
you know, lots of working class people vote mm-hmm. voted for Trump and how do we reach them? Blah, blah, blah. Well, it's like, you know, if push comes to shove, how are you going to reach them? Well, you may as well go where they are and try to sway them within Republican Party primaries. Well, you're going to have to. Right. You're going to have to. But people, you know, people really don't want to have to grapple with what that entails. And so they just kind of pretend that, well, we can just we can just stay we can live in the Democratic Party primary ecosystem forever and there won't ever be any sort of um negative consequences to doing that well it's like what is it the cp whatever you know what's that group the collective power network yeah cpn when they 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 want to be here harringtonites but everyone's talking about the party surrogate model so they adopt that language i've often had that feeling like in socialist alternative you know these folks are basically well-meaning liberals but ever since you know like their grandparents were liberals their parents were gen x now the millennials we we got to be more radical each time so you become progressive and then you become socialist. So you just rebrand the same stuff in new words, like you're hearing tonight, but you talk about the surrogate model. I mean, one thing I fear with a lot of you know, leftists is that they're just changing the language. And so, I mean, we got to ask, what is the essence of the, what's the essence of the thing? Like our political pro, we're all in class unity. Our political program is working class unity. Yeah. And that's going to, like, when does it? Yeah, when does the rubber hit the road? Like when... When are you willing to say when are you willing to take your critique of the Democratic Party, which everyone basically shares, Mm -hmm. you know, even quote unquote liberals in the DSA, Mm -hmm. um, they share the critique of the Democratic Party, which is that it, you know, it's been kicking working class people out. Basically, it only cares about, you know, the the professional class and the billionaires and so on and so forth. You know, this critique of the Democratic Party is universal. um, But. The the next step, which is that, okay, the Democratic Party is non-functional as a working class party. Mm-hmm. We need to find a way to to appeal to large sectors of the population that want nothing to do with the Democratic par- Party. At that point, things become kind of you're 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 very worried about sort of the potential to I, I think fundamentally you're worried about the potential to upset mm-hmm. your quote unquote allies within the democratic party ecosystem mm-hmm. because if word gets out that dsa is running you know people in republican primaries in oklahoma your buddies you know in the local democratic you know operative class are going to be like dsa is <laughs> republicans mm-hmm. you know and you don't want to you don't want to deal with that well the democratic party is worse than than nothing for the working class i think in this country because it's a party of fire sector so it's positively opposed to working class but i think like just to give an example um you know so many so many leftists will say things like recently say things like well you know of course the working class you know, maybe voted for Trump, blah, blah, in the context of the economic recession. But when I say, you know, I think Trump would be better than Biden, um, people melt down. Yeah, I mean, like, um, I I personally was very slow to kind of uh, to believe that Biden would be better than Trump. I think I've basically come around at this point, given that that um, the coronavirus thing is blowing over and Biden seems to be doing like an okay job of it, you know, but um, being being trapped in this kind of lesser evilism, right, where it's like, um, you know, back in November uh, or maybe it was October, but there there was a period where a bunch of DSA leadership got together and were like, oh, we need to be campaigning for Biden. Right. And it's like that sort of lesser evilism is precisely what the organization cannot be doing. 
right? Like, even if you think Biden would be marginally better than Trump, or even if you think Trump would be marginally better than Biden, a socialist organization shouldn't be out there kind of making either case to the electorate, you know, that that either one of these shitty candidates is marginally better than the other. That's not our job. That's not what we should be doing. We need to have our own independent, you know, sort of political message that we can take to the electorate and say, the major parties both suck. We're not just left Democrats. We're not, you know, Republicans. We're something else. And yeah, we're we're sort of, you know, in a given district, we may be running on a Democratic primary. In a given district, we may be running on a Republican primary or a third party primary um, or a third party ballot line. But, you know, we are we're different sort of politics. Mm-hmm. So here's where I would differ yeah. on this. I wouldn't I wouldn't even put out the notion that both of the parties suck. The both of the parties are they're what you got, right? Cuz we don't really have a party system that's basically our electoral system is these two parties. So you're either working within them or you're not. And at the root of it, I think with the DSA, the messaging should be here are the platforms of these two parties. Here's what they say on paper. And here are the working class elements of what they say on paper. And generally, yeah, the Democratic Party is more conducive to that. Like, um, you know, they they say that you, you got the Democratic Party to come around to the idea that, um, you know, health care should be a human right. You know, there should be a fifth. There should be a minimum wage. That's not even a Republican line. Right. That the wealthy should pay more taxes. Those are all Democratic lines and that we should take care of working class people. Biden is 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 helping unions now. Right. All those things are things that the Democratic Party is doing. And if you're if you're a socialist organization, your job within the Democratic Party should be to hold them to account to those things that they're asking for. So if you're going to work inside of that party, you have to make sure that the candidates that you run are campaigning on your platform that says Medicare for all, that says $15 minimum wage, that says, you know, automatic stabilizers. They have to be campaigning on those things within the Democratic Party. Now, if you are campaigning in the Republican Party, which you should also be doing, because if you don't, the hazard of not, it's 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 the idea of leaving money on the table, you know, to, to boil it down to something superficial, where you have this electorate. These people are the most immiserated people, the Republican voters. And they're also working class people. So if you're not working within the Republican Party to alleviate their suffering, you're failing a whole half of the working class population. And the question you have to ask yourself is, are you capable of convincing them to join the Democratic Party along with your surrogate model? Which I would say you can't. So you're going to have to work inside of the Republican Party. And the thing in there is you have people like uh, Josh Hawley and Donald Trump who are saying, yeah, health care is a human right. And we do love workers. And, you know, the money shouldn't have gone to businesses. It should have gone to, you know, working class people. And you have uh, 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 Mitt Romney saying that there should be a UBI for children. Those are all socialist policies. Mm -hmm. The problem Mm -hmm. is Republicans are generally liars. But that's where you come in and say, no, you don't get to lie on this one because we have surrogates inside of your party that are going to hold you to account, just like we have surrogates in the Democratic Party that hold them to account on our party line. Yeah. Well, and that's kind of the key missing piece to how the DSA currently goes about electoral politics, which is. How do you discipline the candidates, right? How do you when you when you have chosen a candidate to run and that candidate wins, what are the mechanisms in place to keep that candidate 
to the platform that they got elected on, right? And this is where I think that the DSA needs to be looking very hard at the success that Socialist Alternative has had with Kshama Sawant in Seattle, right? Look at that model and replicate that model in other cities around the country. Because, um, you know, as you two are both aware, in Seattle, Kshama Sawant is held to a level of discipline by socialist alternative that no DSA candidate or politician anywhere in the country, you know, would even dream of subjecting them themselves to, right? Like her entire staff is chosen by socialist alternative, how she votes on every piece of legislation caveat and the constituency in Seattle. So they have a coalition with different unions. And like you said, like the sunrise movement, but not different um, NGOs. They have a coalition and those people, along with Socialist Alternative, you know, well, Socialist Alternative first and foremost, but they bring those people in to right. also in, in put, a, give input. Yeah, like in a consultative capacity, right? Yeah. But but yeah, the, the point is that, you know, she's not making her staffing decisions. She's not mm-hmm. choosing how she votes on legislation. Mm-hmm. She's not choosing which legislation to propose. Mm-hmm. That is being you know, chosen for her via process of democratic deliberation by the organization under, under whose discipline she is. Right. And this means that when Kshama, you know, is saying something, it's not Kshama saying it, right. Mm -hmm. Kshama is, is putting forward the message that has been decided Mm -hmm. for her by her political organization. Well, um, she's expressing the program. She's, right. She's expressing the she's program. She's a surrogate. Right. She's exactly. She's a proxy yeah. or a conduit. Right. She is held to discipline by her party. And that is the that is the standard that the DSA should be. And now, of course, it's going to be difficult to get the DSA to that position. Right. The DSA has no sort of um, has no Leninist party model history where Aren't they anti-centralist. Uh, right. And so the DSA formally bans membership. Mm-hmm. from other democratic centralist organizations. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the DSA bans democratic centralism internally. Like so um and class unity is is proposing a resolution to get rid of the ban on external democratic centralism as well. But even if we fail in that, you can still have the DSA imposing democratic mm-hmm. centralism on its politicians. There's nothing in the bylaws mm-hmm. that prevent that. So, okay. um you know, I we should be moving in that direction and we should be making the argument internally that you know, if 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 the if Shama's model works in Seattle for socialist alternative, there is no reason it couldn't work in New York City for AOC. There's no reason it couldn't work in Chicago for our six, you know, except that they wouldn't do it. And, you know, this is do it. This is what's so strange, because I remember in socialist alternative hearing I was more mindful of the stuff around Shama and people complain about the fact that she's held to account to do politics for her constituency. They say, oh, well, she's controlled by mm-hmm. some nefarious external you know, you almost could start inserting sort of paranoid conspiracy, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, like there's some puppet master pulling the strings <laughs> behind her or something. But, but you know, what's so weird about it is that people complain about crooked politicians who are just professional careerists. Mm-hmm. But if you don't want that, then you need you need an independent organization which with a political program which is clearly stated people are held to it. And if they don't do it, then they're toast and they're not paid for by anybody else. But their membership. Yeah. You have to have a mechanism for ostracizing uh, people who go against the, the party platform. And with the 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 campaign in uh, Seattle, um, it was to the degree where we had to basically, if you came from out of state, you had to say that you were from Seattle. So you, I stayed with a guy there and I used his address as like 
where I'm from. We kind of learned the region. It was, it was, it was to that degree because, and I want to get into kind of like the hazards of having a surrogate model where a, uh, a candidate is beholden to um, the party because you have to recognize that there are merits and demerits of anything you're going to do. For sure. And with Shama, um, it kind of produces, you, you, you can produce stagnation. Um, it's not as mobile. It's not as flexible as just running candidates. If you're just running candidates, you can find a thousand people all over the country who want to use you? At, you want to use your franchise, right? We want to use your name. We want to call ourselves the McDonald's Party. You know, we 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 sell you know Big Macs, right? That's easy. You can franchise yourself out to a thousand people. They just buy in. Um, with a party, you have to build that infrastructure, and you have to build enough infrastructure, and you have to have enough participants to hold them to account. So you're not going to have access to as many places off, you know, the drop, you know. Right. So it, it's it's a lot more disciplined. It's a lot less flexible, yeah. and that's a decision that you have to make at a certain point. Maybe you do um, have. A model where you have some flexibility. Yeah, we're going to franchise out some candidates in some places, but at a certain point, they're going to have to come into the party. And if they don't at, you know, X amount of years of us, you know, fielding them, like we campaign for them this one time, like let's say Byron or right. uh, Carlos, right. um, we campaign for you, right? But if you want us to maintain this, this, you, you, we want you, if you want our help, if you want us to maintain that, that aid, you're going to have to come into the party platform. You're going to have to start, you know, hiring the people that we want you to hire. You're going to have to start towing the party line. Well, you're, you're going to have to prove that the brand that you're the brand you're representing isn't just your own personal career exactly. brand, right. but it's the actual. Yeah, and I you know, that's a that's a very good point is that, you know, the DSA's current model of basically entrepreneurial freelance candidates mm -hmm. kind of doing whatever they mm -hmm. want. Um, has had advantages. You know, it is very flexible. It allows you to spin up and run campaigns all over the place, you know, with, with very little deliberation. It's you like just Korea kind of, politics. Right. Yeah. But, you know, at the same time, absolutely correct that at a certain point, you have to be transitioning away from that model because otherwise um, your organization is going to be at the mercy of the career imperatives of a bunch of politicians, mm -hmm. most of whom are sociopaths because that's just how politicians no are, cohesion. right? No cohesion. They just do what they want. I mean, you look at the the Chicago DSA 6, right? Like they were elected and initially they were all, oh, we're going to start a socialist caucus on city council. That never happened. You know, they mm -hmm. don't vote mm -hmm. as a block. You know, <laughs> like I'm not sure to what extent they even talk to each other, frankly. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, this is the kind of thing or, or you look at, for example, AOC, Right. Where it's like, who knows what AOC is going to say on any given day? Her message discipline is totally bonkers. Like mm -hmm. she's on Twitter constantly just saying ridiculous things. Um, you know, she she wouldn't push for the Medicare for all things. She voted for Nancy Pelosi for speaker, blah, blah. blah. And it's like that's an excellent example. Yeah. That's where any discipline needs to happen. Yeah. That doesn't. Right. That but doesn't. A but it's like AOC was allowed to become too big to fail, basically, by DSA because she's, you know, her brand is bigger than DSA's brand at this point. Well, not even that. She, there is no backup. There yeah. is no organization behind her. So 
if she goes against the party line, she just sacrifices herself at that point. Because well, but she's stronger than the party line. I'm just saying, regard she maybe she becomes part stronger than the party line, but there is no party line, so there is no backup. Right. She sacrifices herself, and then there's no one, and there is no party to build something back up. So you're left with nothing. Um, and so if there is a party and you have the squad that has to tow a party line, that means you have this whole apparatus behind them that says okay, we're going to apply the pressure for you. All you need to do is voice that pressure. There is no pressure that you have to create. And with this entrepreneurial model, they have to create the pressure. And that shouldn't be their job. And yeah. regardless of the missteps, you know, like with the uh, uh, force to vote, yeah, your party is going to have missteps and there's going to be disagreements, but you have to have some discipline that says... We're going to commit to those missteps and we're going to move forward with what we learn. Right now, you have a bunch of information coming in, but there is no party to curate that information and make a plan for someone like an AOC. Yeah. So that's the model. She's functioning within the model right. that was given to her. Right. And that's why DSA needs to be thinking about how to how to move past this model to a to a more effective model over the long term, right? Like a model that will allow, you know, the candidates to, you know, to to be welded together into um you know an actual weapon for prosecuting a political case you know in the public sphere as opposed to just kind of this entrepreneur entrepreneurial thing that they do right now and yeah that's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a, a huge amount of um you know sort of developing these structures basically from scratch because the dsa isn't a leninist party it has no history of unified political education you know like shama sawant has read lenin and trotsky right like she's a socialist alternative member she has experienced a, a formation a political education you know model that has gotten her basically on the same page as mm -hmm. other you know full members of the organization that doesn't happen in dsa right like there is no guarantee that aoc right. has read well, it's I mean, probably for the best that we don't have a Trotsky yeah. requirement because I've seen the damage that that can do right. to people. Sure, but, no, yeah. but you know what I mean, right? Like, right. Um, well, I mean, we can have uh, we can have a program to which um, agents of the of the cause are held to account. Yeah, and we can have uh, discipline and all of these things without. I mean, I wouldn't even necessarily call it Leninist. I mean, you know, people get thrown out of the SPD in Germany for for saying heinous shit right um about foreigners i mean recently this has happened in a recent context but i mean you don't have to be a leninist for that you just you just have to be committed to the idea that your politics this is only for real if there are results yeah and in america i mean basically we just have professional managerial careerism über alles and then you know, it's just you just have politicians careening through the world, collateral damage, everything like a bull in a china shop. And we think that's what politics is. But it's actually it's not politics. It's just yeah. more private sphere behavior in, right. in the public sphere. Yeah. And so, you know, that's and yeah, there are going to be a lot of people within DSA who say um, they're going to be a there's going to be a huge amount of pushback um, when we start making these arguments like we need to be disciplining candidates. Mm -hmm. We need to be, you know. 
But it needs to happen. It needs to happen. Otherwise, the DSA is not going to go anywhere. It's going to be able to elect candidates in the same kind of rapidly gentrifying major metro districts that it can already elect candidates in. Those candidates are going to undergo a very rapid evolution into a form that is more compatible with the demands of the local Democratic Party, um, you know, patronage network, and they're they're going to graduate out of socialism into progressivism. And that's a really know, important point. You know, you, you look, there was an interesting article I read recently about Kristen Sinema, the the um, senator from Arizona, who was who famously went on the floor of the Senate and like did a little dance and voted mm. against the $15 minimum wage. Right. Disgusting. Right. And and, you know, people looked at her. There was an article about her sort of backstory. She was at one point the secretary of the Arizona Green Party. Mm. You know, like she was a progressive activist. Mm-hmm. who made it and got elected to Congress and now she's like voting against the $15 minimum wage. Oh, Always, hold on, from a previous <laughs> podcast our buddy who said Jim Cramer was a part of the Spartacus League. Yeah, <laughs> just to put it in Check perspective. Check out the 18 million millionaires. Yeah, this yeah. is this is sad. I mean, she's that's that's not incompatible with progressivism i think yeah. this is what this is the hard thing to swallow for for self-designating leftists and dsa folks because you can be a progressive and do that she yeah. probably is a progressive yeah i, I mean fucking teddy roosevelt was a progressive and he was an oligarch yeah, I'll take Teddy over I'll Kristen Sinema. I'll take Teddy too. Teddy <laughs> too but. but yeah, but you, but you know what I mean. Like, you know, and and it's not like so people forget, but DSA had uh, Congress people before, right? Before AOC, DSA had like um, Ron Dellums. Um, I I think. Um, let me let me make sure I'm I'm getting the guy right. But he was um, Oakland. Um, yep, Ron Dellums. There we go. Um, he was, you know, a, a new left radical who was mm-hmm. elect, who was a member of DSA, who was elected to Congress um, from from Oakland, California, um, and you know had a had a long career in Congress, and then retired from Congress and became mayor of Oakland, and was like. Just, you know, by the end of his career, he was pushing a straightforward gentrification, you know, major developer sort of line that had nothing to do with, you know, the early part of his career when when he was a a DSA member. And it's like this happens so often Mm -hmm. and so regularly. Right. And I think people don't realize that, um, you know, without without discipline, without efforts to force our candidates and our politicians to. Um, to adhere to any sort of party line, um, you're going to you're going to run in a situation, you know, in 10, 15 years where AOC is voting against the minimum wage increase. Mm-hmm. It's right? not like, even just discipline of the politicians. It's disciplining your members, too. Yeah. That's why you need a party line to rely on, because AOC on the flip side to you being able to discipline her and say you need to you know, take a living wage and all that stuff. She needs to be able to come to you like, hey, I need a boycott. Can you guys do that? Can you guys organize that for me? And then you're supposed to be able, you should be able to do that. We got to be reliable, not be flaky. Right. So you need to have people on a page where we've elected these people to push our platform. What do we need to do on the other side to put some power behind that platform? Right. You don't have that yet either. And I think that's more foundational than even disciplining your candidates. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's I think the strongest argument is that the DSA 
is not mature enough to settle on a sensible platform that would actually be attractive to the working class, right? Like, mm-hmm. and we'll see. There's there's a platform sort of proposal circulating right now. It's going to be voted on the convention. Um, you know, we'll see how it turns out. Turns out to be right. Um, I could see that platform being decent. I could also see that platform being full of just weird, weird shit that like, like the DSA always sort of in recent years does where it's like, we're going to take a little bit of Medicare for all and a little bit of higher minimum wage. And we're going to sprinkle in a little bit of like abolish the police or a little bit of, you know, immediate open borders and, and, you know, reparations or that kind of shit. And then we'll just mix it all together. And the stuff that's appealing is drowned out by the stuff that's weird. And it just winds up not really going anywhere. But if the DSA can kind of show that it has the internal maturity to kind of settle on a platform that is actually, that, that, that is actually comprehensible, you know, to working people and not just totally alienated them. I think that would be a great step that we're, we're on the way to being able to, to actually behave like a party, like what we've been talking about a party behaving. Yeah. Let's go, go into that though, because this is uh this is important. What the, the, the pretense and the claim and the ambition is to do something, you know, everybody's a socialist nowadays. It's like even progressive isn't good enough. Could you explain um, like either how you see the, the current, platform shaping up what it what it's going to include and what previous platforms have included f- first well you know i don't honestly the current platform draft it hasn't been voted on but it was only released a couple days ago mm-hmm. it's been kind of in production by the npc right now and i haven't actually read it that carefully so i don't really know um we, we can take okay. it. Okay. I mean, tr- if, if you don't know, like, if you know previous platforms and what they've included. Well, the DSA has not really been been one for platforms historically. Like, mm-hmm. it's passed a bunch of resolutions, you know, at its, um, you know, at its conventions. Mm-hmm. But those resolutions, more often than not, just kind of, like, vanish into the ether as soon as the convention is over right like Mm. there's no follow-up like last time um dsa famously passed a resolution calling for like a universal child care campaign or something and it it allocated money to this campaign and (laughs) it literally never happened like Mm -hmm. the thing just disappeared Mm -hmm. as soon as (laughs) as soon as the you know within a couple months of the convention so um you know, I, I think part of it is that the DSA's internal politics is not defined enough for the membership to figure out how to participate in it, right? Like, in a healthy political organization, once you reach a couple tens of thousands of members, there's internal factionalism, mm-hmm. people sort of – people adopt kind of miniature party lines within the organization and compete with each other. Yeah, fiefdoms. Right, fiefdoms. They have coherent debates around political issues um, and kind of align themselves with other people who they find themselves on the same side you know, of a lot of the time. And that's how kind of these debates are prosecuted internally. But that doesn't happen in the DSA yet. The vast majority of the membership doesn't even come to meetings, you know, first off. And, you know, they're – People are not at all sort of cognizant of the political debates. A lot of these debates are happening under the surface, um, you know, between factions that kind of are really branding themselves as this or that. But, mm-hmm. you know, their actual political beliefs may have nothing to do with how, like Bread and Rose is a good example. Like Bread and Rose brands itself as Marxist. And I'm sure a lot of their members kind of think of themselves as Marxist. But if you look at how Bread and Rose actually behaves, mm-hmm. right? 
within DSA, it's it's just like all the other liberal caucuses, right? Like bread and roses are the people who actually canceled the Adolf Reed event in mm, New York City because unbelievable. you know, and it's like that's shameful. It is, and they actually the crazy thing is that after that happened. Apparently, the same people who had canceled Reed then sent him a kind of groveling email apologizing for canceling. At least have the courage of your convictions, right? But it's a private email, so they didn't even have the courage to like say to say publicly say we fucked up. We're sorry, Adolf Reed. They sent him a private email being like we fucked up. We're sorry, Adolf Reed. You know, and it's like this is how politics is happening in the DSA. There's there's who cancels them. Who cancels them? You don't do that to Adolf Reed. He's a fucking well, you legend. You cancel yourself because you 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 limit your power. That's all that is. Yeah, right. Just, yeah. But marginalize yourself. But like this is point. this is the one of the key issues of the DSA is that there's no political clarity. The arguments are not occurring above board. They're occurring kind of in an opaque manner, mm-hmm. under the table. Mm-hmm. You know, where where people who personally have no problem with Adolf Reed, then cancel him publicly, but then apologize to him privately because it's they're they're triangulating between all these different sort of, you know, exterior and inter- interior factions. It's and reactionary. It's just, yeah, it, it's it's not it's not a healthy functioning well, organization. They're a bunch of, I don't know what, self-seeking. I mean, a lot know. of it's careerism. A lot of it is, you know, I'm working for a candidate and um, my candidate is a Democrat and, you know, my Democrat candidate doesn't want me associating with a guy like Adolf Reed, who, you know, someone on, I don't know, someone on the internet called a class reductionist or something. So I have to put distance between. That doesn't sound good. Well, right. Past that, um, kind of talking about the party aspect of things. Um, so it, it seems, so if you understand, um, what a party should be, a party should be advocating for its members. And I see some of the problems within DSA. They often say we can't recruit working class people. Yeah. (laughs) Right. But you have what you have in the DSA and they are working class people of a type, whether you're POC or whatever, whatever, whatever the fuck, PMC, POC, (laughs) whatever, uh, acronym, um, whatever you are. Um, And um, if you have that, (laughs) I think the reason why people really have no investment um, is A, because there is no platform. If you have a platform, then you can work outside of your own concerns. But B, uh, DSA doesn't really advocate for the concerns of its members, largely. I mean, Medicare for all is for everybody, but mm-hmm. that's kind of a national platform. But mm-hmm. if you're talking about predominantly, you have students and former students are the the the, the core of your, your party, um, I hear a lot of people in DSA who are opposed to student loan debt forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And I'd imagine if that was like the key because it's 2 PM push C. of your 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 party, your platform, your members are gonna go out for that because they have a material concern with Yeah, that. but but I, I don't know. I disagree with that because I think Can I give an example though? Yeah, sure. Okay, so SPD and the second international, the classic classic Marxists, they weren't doing this because it was the right thing to do. They weren't doing it because they really cared and they empathized with the other or whatever. They were doing their politics because, um, you know, they desperately needed higher wages in medicine and retirement and, and they needed universal suffrage for their own sake. And so they had material incentives there. They profited from that in in a way which I don't think you see here. I think people on the left do things out of principle because it's the right thing to do. But but I think that is is saying like, um, 
socialist politics needs to be in the, for the benefit of working people, and and then we'll do it. But we're not we're not presenting it that way. Is that somehow more convincing, or still not? Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that, but I I think it's important when you're when you're looking at the DSA, you know, the the kind of odd um, middle class class composition of the DSA. Um, is a problem because you have a lot of people who who's as you say whose primary reason for being involved with politics is because it's the right thing or for moralistic reasons right and um i i think that is a fundamental fact of middle class activism and the only way around it is to get enough working class people into the organization that they start to direct mm-hmm its political trajectory. Right. Mm. And so I think going out and campaigning for student loan forgiveness, um, is not helpful. I not to say I oppose student loan forgiveness, you know, I'm in favor of it, but it's not helpful because it doesn't help you attract working class people because working class people don't have student loans. Right. Mm. So um, here's, here's, here's where I would disagree. Yeah. Working class people that I talk to often say, what have socialists actually done? Yeah. So if what I'm saying is, What's going to motivate the membership you have right now, maybe I'm wrong, is something like student loan debt forgiveness because they have a material concern. Yeah, Once I, you win that material concern, yeah. you can present that as you a proof of concept to working class people like, right. okay, what are your concerns now? Because we can win. That's that's my key concern. I, I don't know. I, w- I would say if you're going to be pushing for stuff to win, you should be pushing for stuff that... That will also attract working class people okay. in in that fight as well, right? So it's like I I don't think student loan debt is a good thing for the DSA to be focusing its energies on, just because the DSA's overriding problem is that it's not it doesn't have a working okay. class membership, right? And student, it doesn't have a blue collar membership. Well, no, but I mean, like yeah. you know, it it, do, it doesn't have. Uh, it people whose career is working at you know grocery stores are not blue collar per se, but well, I'm trying to get with something more specific because, I mean, let's be precise. It's somehow rigorous. I mean, everyone in America is working class except for the, the tiniest fraction of the- sure. But but if if we're looking at working class and opposing it to not just capital bourgeoisie but also to middle class, right? Mm-hmm. And this is the uh, problem that left parties historically have. Well, we have. Okay, which is that middle class activists take over the party and bend it, you know, towards their own kind of fads and interests. Well, I guess I'm thinking middle class is working class, and the sure, reason I why mean, yes, it is. We but, shouldn't get hung up on this, but I've said it before. I'll say it again. The point to do student loan forgiveness is not to help poor people, but to destroy the wealth of the ruling class, and and also because it's a political economic program, and that's what socialists should be focusing on, not cultural issues. So they should be focusing on yeah. political economy, <laughs> also because it's in the interest of these people. And but if as what Daddy's saying is true, then you're going to want people to do shit that benefits them because they'll fight harder when they have something to win. Sure, I, you know. And I agree. And I don't want to come off as like, like politics I'm, is not I'm, charity. Yeah. I'm, I don't want to come off as like I'm opposed to student loan forgiveness as like a policy platform. Right. And I, you know, but I, I don't think it's the most promising one sure, sure. to be focused. Agreed. On. I so, think that stuff like Medicare for all raising the minimum wage. I okay. think that is more useful um, because it, right. it actually speaks directly to mm-hmm. the working class, you know, and uh, your constituency that right. you have in the, the larger constituency that is lacking from the actual existing DSA. And it helps you get them in. And it's that a will both help. and proposition right. rather than and just you know the and right know? and and if you're able to to get working class people into the DSA you can hold out hope that they will begin to kind of um 
they will begin to kind of massage away kind of the bizarre middle class activist subculturalism that reigns on the American left. Um, and I think that's one of the one of the the big things to to be optimistic about is that if we're and it may not happen within DSA, but I think just economic conditions are going to be such that working class people are going to become more activated at a certain point. And we're seeing this in, with this Amazon, you know, thing in, in Alabama, right? Like that's big, like mm-hmm. that you've got an Amazon plant, you know, or an Amazon warehouse that is on the cusp of unionization mm-hmm. in a part of the country where DSA types, <laughs> socialist activist types are totally absent, mm-hmm. right? Like, and they don't want to have anything to do with we've it. We've been right. saying this all the time that you have a red left and you have a blue left and the red left seems to be more effective. They might not even know that they're you left. Know, they're just like, right. out there winning. Well, stuff. yeah, or like the West Virginia fight for 15, teacher yeah, strike, that mean, kind of stuff. Yeah, like, yeah, the, I mean, in, in Florida, whoever everyone sees the joke of America. Right. They won 15 and they won voting rights right. for uh, felons. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Like, could you imagine yep, that yep, yep. in in, Illinois, in, in yep. Chicago? Yep. Oh, Jesus. Meanwhile, and, California can't even protect Uber drivers. And right. they can't even, yeah. like, uh, 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 you know, uh, um, I guess ha- have some effect on their homeless problem yep. while Utah can eliminate their right. homeless problem. And and Missouri and Oklahoma just passed Medicaid expansion via ballot initiative. Like, the, you know, this is the, the kind of stuff that... So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying around, like, the material. So, w- what I was saying to reiterate it is that you need to have a party that's based on the material concerns of the constituency. And what I'm hearing you say is that um, not necessarily something like um, student loan debt forgiveness is the the primary concern of the constituency, both that you have and the constituency that you need. Right. And to get over like another point, I would like people to stop thinking in the paradigm. You said it not, not to like dig at you, but mm-hmm. um, the idea of they, we need to get into the idea of we, mm-hmm. how do we, how do we make the, they a part of the we mm-hmm. that's, that's, that's the goal, right? Yeah. We're not doing this for other people. This isn't right. charity, you know? And right. that's, that's the idea of getting back to like forming the party and, campaigning within the Republican Party, because if you want to be a part of the we in that region, the we is Republican. Mm-hmm. Right. So you need to get back to that and, and, and kind of if you want to if you have more to say on the, the, the yeah. subject. Well, you know, and I think so I, I want to just quickly um, go back to a point that we were, when we were talking about discipline. We were talking about candidate discipline. But I think another important point is that we need uh, we need to be disciplining the DSA's leadership stratum as well, mm. right? And this is about the patronage problem. This is the patronage problem because DSA leadership is a huge proportion of DSA leadership has jobs mm-hmm. working for candidates, working for politically active NGOs, mm-hmm. working as operatives, working as, mm-hmm. you know, all these kind of jobs that exist in this milieu, right, of um, of 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 just kind of basically major city urban uh, democratic machine politics, right? Like that's kind Mm -hmm. of the milieu that they're working in. Um, Blue left, blue left. And this kind of stuff means that these people have divided loyalties. Are they going to be fighting for the interests of their organization DSA, or are they going to be fighting for the interests of the candidate they work for their Their money, their their career, their money, their career career prospects, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a very easy step that we could take is 
Well, back, hang on, before you say yeah. it, just to unpack it. Sure. You're saying the problem is not just that the that the groups they claim to represent can't discipline them when they do their careerist sellout moves. Rather, you're saying that they get these jobs as sort of benefits, patronage, and that influences them, right? Yeah, it influences them. And... Um, so you're working for you. You say you're you're supposed to be the leadership of the DSA, but you're actually working for some city alderman, right? And, and so what, that's where yeah. the money comes from, right? And, and so, so that's wh- who you're loyal to, exactly. And so, like, what does DSA? What does your DSA leadership position get you? It gets you the job with the city alderman, mm. maybe. Mm-hmm. And then what does the what does the city alderman job get you? That gets your your fucking paycheck, right? Yeah, and you don't bite the hand that feeds, and DSA doesn't pay you anything, right? Exactly. And so, um, I, I think it's very important, um. You know, not to say that these are bad people, blah, 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 but it's just this is a conflict of interest and it can't be allowed, you uh-huh. know, in an organization like the DSA. We can't have DSA leadership acting, you know, wearing two hats, mm-hmm. right, and pretending that they're going to be the same people we want to be disciplining our candidates are also being paid by the candidates. It's not feasible. You can't but, do it. It's but this Jamal, old union problem. Right. You know? We we are a body without organs. This is this is the rhizome. It's all horizontal and anti anti hierarchical, right. anarcho right, yeah. But but I think you know very simply you know, and this is a proposal that that you know we we put in our article is um, DSA needs rules about conflict of interest. You can't be in a DSA leadership position and work for a political can- yeah. candidate mm-hmm. or campaign or what have you at the same time. Yeah. Period. You can't do it. If you get hired by a political candidate, congratulations. Goodbye. You know, quit your DSA leadership post and someone else will take your place. And if you, when the campaign is over and you lose and you don't get hired, <laughs> you're welcome, you're welcome to run again and you're welcome to come back, you, you know, come but, back with your tail between your right, legs, you know, or whatever. Right. But, but you know, or it, it doesn't even have to be tail between your legs. Like it's, you know, it's admirable to go out and, sure, and try sure. to fight, you know, um, if you're doing it for pure intentions, it's admirable to go out and step down from your leadership position and try to get this candidate elected. And, you know, if your candidate loses, but you know, you, you guys did a good job. Well, you know, you you fought the good fight and you can now rejoin the, mm-hmm. the leadership ranks of the organization, you know, assuming you win an election again. But um, but to my mind, it's 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 just very important that we start normalizing these ideas that mm-hmm. um, discipline is not just about kind of what people say. It's not just about their their inner hearts and their intentions mm-hmm. and are they good people or not? Are they committed socialists or not? Blah, blah, mm-hmm. you know. Discipline has to take into account the fact that even good people and committed socialists are naturally influenced by the mm-hmm. economic incentives mm-hmm. that they, you know, that that swirl around them in their day to day lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you can't pretend that that's not going to happen. And you can't pretend that everyone is kind of, you know, a, a, a sort of like an autistic Bernie Sanders type who just kind of like goes his entire mm-hmm. life. Like mm-hmm. we were you know, talking about that. It's just the system of, 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 of trust. Like if you want a party of Bernie Sanders, that's, that's a 50 year commitment yeah. to that. Pla- like he, he has been messaging the same thing for 50 years. Right. So I can rely on Bernie right. Sanders to maintain that position, but an AOC or Rashida Tlaib, I, I can't, I can't rely on that. No, I, I, would like to think they're good people. Right. I really want to think they're good people to the point where I advocate for them, right? Right. But I can't rely on that. I put myself at risk. I put other people at risk, more importantly, when I rely on the kindness of their heart. Um, and what you know, accountability and discipline does is it 
um, inoculates you from those hazards. You know, yeah. speaking in the times, you you need some vaccines right. from the hazards of human nature. You know, to put it simply, or or and, let's say capitalist society where there are incentives yeah. for careerism. Yeah, yeah, your inc- people are built off of their incentives, right? And, but but if I would also add though, if you want a whole party of Bernie Sanders, you don't actually want success because I mean, love Bernie Sanders, but um, we need an army of soldiers. That's what scares leftists. We need warriors, soldiers. And the biggest problem, I think, is allowing... So discipline is not a right-wing virtue. Discipline is not a conservative virtue. Discipline is just a technique that success requires. And we cannot concede that to the opponents and expect anything. I think a lot of leftists are perfectly happy to lose with their clean hands and their good intentions. But um, we should be clear about that. We need an army of soldiers, and that's what discipline's about. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think, you know, that's one of the key things is just getting getting this stuff out to the lay membership of the DSA that isn't being politically educated because DSA political education is functionally non-existent in the sense that the vast majority of members never Mm -hmm. have any sort of interaction with it. Um, You know, but I think this is basic common sense. If you, you know, if you talk to people and you just... Doesn't make sense for our candidates to kind of just be promising stuff and then we check in with them periodically and and or if you're running as a as a candidate for the and the DSA is pouring all these resources into your campaign, the man hours, the volunteer hours, um, you know, shouldn't the DSA expect to call the shots? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't the DSA expect to say, no, you can't hire that machine hack to be your chief of staff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, no, you can't just kind of use the price. Right. Like <laughs> and not just top down, but in a way which is accountable to its right. constituency. And and another thing that that Shama Sawant does, you know, is she surrenders a large proportion of her salary to her organization. And this is not that uncommon. If you look at the Socialist Party of the Netherlands, mm-hmm. for example, is a great example. Um, M- MPs of the Socialist Party of the Netherlands surrender, you know, their entire salary above the average salary of a of a professional worker in their district to their party, and the party is able to use that to basically fund future campaigns, to mm-hmm. develop cadre and all that stuff. Um, that you know, obviously, it's useful for the party to have this source of income, but it's also useful because it it it's a very strong. Um, sort of filter for people who have good intentions versus people who don't, right? Mm -hmm. If I am willing to promise I'm going to give up $30,000 of my salary a year to the party, that's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. You know, maybe you can trust me a little bit more than you can trust someone who Mm -hmm. says, no, you know, I'm really, I would like my entire paycheck. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, that's another, another point that I think is important, you know, for us to be getting out there. And then finally, the last part of the article that I wanted to touch on um, is uh, electoral reform. Mm. Um, and this is something that if you talk to people in DSA or on the American left generally, of course, everyone likes electoral reform. Of course. I mean, you've got the occasional like literal quack who has some kind of ideas to like galaxy brain ideas to why ranked choice voting, voting is like actually bad. But for the most part. Can you explain what that is? Briefly? So ranked choice voting is the most feasible form of electoral reform in the United States. Basically, um, instead of just voting for one candidate, you rank your candidates one, two, three, four, five, mm-hmm. and then uh, the candidate with the lowest vote is eliminated. Their second preferences are redistributed, and so on, up and up and up until one of the candidates wins a majority of the vote. Um, that's how it works in single member districts, which is the vast majority of districts in the United States. Um, a, a, an improvement on that is single transferable vote, which is 
is basically ranked choice voting in multi-member districts. Um, it's a f- basically it works like a form of proportional representation where um, you've got a district, you got say five candidates who will be elected from that district. Everyone ranks everyone, and then you just you know you eliminate the bottom ranked candidates um, until five candidates you know are at the top basically. Mm-hmm. And so in that kind of situation, um, you can have something like proportional representation. Mm-hmm. So if about 15% of, or, or let's say 20% of the voters in that district prefer socialists, mm-hmm. the socialists will probably win mm-hmm. one of those five seats basically. So everybody gets more of what they want. Right. So it, it's, it, it's a way of promoting the development of a multi-party system in the United States. It's okay. the system that's used in Ireland um, for their elections. Um, and it works pretty well. I mean, Ireland, I think is, the only country in the world where a Trotskyist party has seats in parliament. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. It, you know, it, it works. Right. Thanks for explaining that. Okay. Close parentheses back to sure. your point. So, um, there are some like total quacks in DSA who think that electoral reform is actively bad, but for the most part, everyone in DSA is like, no, electoral reform is good. But then when, when push comes to shove, it's like, should we be pushing for this? Should we have electoral reform campaigns, you know, like, should we be trying to get this stuff on the ballot? Um, people don't want to do that. And they have all sorts of reasons as to why, like, oh, it's procedural fetishism. Um, you know, it's not actually going to help us, blah, blah, blah. And I, you know, I just want to make it clear that that is insane. You know, it's like, if, if you are, you know, wait, is it insane in the membrane? It's insane in the membrane. Okay. If if you're, for example, let's say you're you're playing basketball, you're playing basketball. Was and, that a joke? <laughs> trying, but let's say you're playing basketball and the other team's net is like three feet higher than your team's net, mm-hmm. right? The first thing that you would do in that situation is lobby to have the rules changed so right. that mm-hmm. the nets are at the same height, right? Mm-hmm. Like the idea that so many people in DSA are like, no, it wouldn't have that big of an effect. That is crazy. It would have a huge effect to reform the electoral system so that third party candidates could, could run on something approaching a level. So why are they field. opposed to it if it's obviously good? I think that a lot of them don't want to have their hands forced when it comes to yeah. running as Democrats yeah. or not. They right? want to protect their privilege and caprice and so right. forth. And so what do you mean by they don't want to have their hands forced? Because let's say you're in a state and they're already. And so this is another thing I want to point out is that people talk about electoral reform like it's this impossible task. And it's like two states have already implemented ranked choice voting via ballot initiative with no help from the left. You know, the left mm-hmm. was just totally sitting those fights out. Mm-hmm. And Maine and Alaska, fucking Alaska. They were on Twitter is, probably. Right. Like Alaska is a fucking 60, 60% Republican state mm-hmm. implements ranked choice voting, Red you left. know, not because the DSA was involved, but anyway, um, you know, when, when in now in a state like Maine, the local DSA has to decide, are we going to run as Democrats or are we going to run as a third party? And there is essentially no reason to only run as a Democrat anymore in Maine. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you can say maybe we'll run as a Democrat and as a third party because there's no harm in doing mm-hmm. that. You can run a candidate in the Democratic primary. You can run a third party candidate in the general. If you lose the Democratic primary, you still got your candidate in the general. That perfect. But that means that you're you have you have no credible reason not mm-hmm. to be running third party mm-hmm. candidates anymore because there's no mm-hmm. spoiler effect. There's no way in which you're hurting the Democrat by doing this. Mm-hmm. So there, the lesser evilism argument no longer applies. Um and I think that a lot of the most vocal critics of electoral reform within the DSA 
don't want to be in that situation. They don't want to have to acknowledge that there's no reason for us not to be running a third party candidate in this Mm -hmm. juncture. Mm. They want to be able to say, oh, no, we unfortunately, we just have to keep. Mm. What's like an administrator? They just don't want to have their hands tied in any respect. They just want to be. It's it's akin to um, what Democrats do right now. We can't do this like. With the whole um, the stimulus vote that just happened, right? Oh, we need to get ten Republicans. Oh, they're fucking <laughs> insane. Well, it, it 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 appears that we also have some insane Democrats. That's why you can't get fifteen dollar minimum wage. Why right. the fuck if do we you need have Republicans? Right. It's it, at that point, it does start to reveal a lot about the apparatus that you're mm-hmm. working in. Mm-hmm. So, I. To me, it sounds like an opposition to ranked choice voting is kind of like an allegiance to the Democratic Party. Yeah, that's the functional effect of of opposing mm-hmm. electoral reform um, is that it it keeps the DSA within the Democratic Party. And so the argument we're making is, yes, in the vast majority of the country that uses first past the post voting, which as a reminder means that whoever wins the most votes, not mm-hmm. necessarily the majority, mm-hmm. but the most votes wins. And so the practical effect of first past the post is that there's vote splitting. And so because, for example, if I vote for the Green Party candidate instead of the Democrat, I've essentially taken a vote away from the Democrat. Mm -hmm. And so I've made it more likely that the Republican will win. That's vote splitting. And the electorate understands this. And so that's why the electorate doesn't like to vote for Mm -hmm. third parties in the United Mm -hmm. States, because they get that. They understand that if my if my preference is for the Democrat against the Republican and I vote for the green, I'm helping the Republican. People get that. Um, and it sucks. And we'd like to, ch- we should want to change that. And that's where electoral reform comes in. And, you know, if you can implement electoral reform, now you've got, mm-hmm. you've got so much more freedom of maneuver as a socialist party. You can run, you know, two candidates simultaneously, like we were just talking about one in the democratic primary, mm-hmm. one in the general, and, you just seamlessly transition. If your guy loses in the democratic primary transition, all those volunteer resources straight over to the guy who's running on a third party line in the general and just keep on fighting, you know, like don't that, that makes it so much easier to be oppositional to the democratic. Well, this is also supposing that you want to win, but I think it's important to remember, like the concept of the PMC was coined by the Aaron Reichs because if there's this anti-democratic, I don't mean the party, I mean, you know, political democracy, anti-democratic, authoritarian, elitist class problem on the left where, you know, they don't want to win. They want to manage their fiefdom and their yeah. click on their way to their better job. Yeah. And so, I mean, I mean, indeed, that would be a great strategy to use to win if you want to win. But some people don't want to win, strangely right. enough. And what this means is that the enemy isn't just on the other on the other side. The enemy is also the inside, right? It's it's in right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, this is the the core sort of our of our proposal is that a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, well, we need to we need to stay in the Democrats for now, but don't worry. We're going to, we're going to move past them eventually. It's like, okay, here are ways that we can ensure that that happens. Right. So what's the guarantee? Let's go into this. We, we start disciplining candidates. We start disciplining our own leadership stratum. We start fighting for ranked choice voting. We, we knock down all the structural barriers that stand in the way of us and actually behaving like a real workers party. And as those barriers fall, you know, each time we're able to behave a little bit more like a party. We're able mm-hmm. to have a little bit more control over our politicians. We're able to have a little bit more control over our own ballot line. You know, we're able to 
we're, we're able to gather strength and, and bring our message to the working class in a slightly more effective way each time. And if we can start doing that, then who knows? And in a couple years time, the DSA might actually be um, something that's capable of appealing to regular working people because. So just to be clear, yeah. to enumerate, that means um, disciplining a careerist uh, leadership, yep. ending the patronage chain, yep. which allows external um political campaigns to influence the organization without any accountability to the group. And um, it means this change in the elect election uh, Fight, process. Yep. Fighting to change the electoral system. So that we can actually win. Right. And then the other thing, and this is a part that I didn't write because I'm not an expert on it, is um, finding alternatives to, because right now we're reliant on the Democratic Party, not only for the ballot line, but also for all this voting software, this, this mm -hmm. you know, supporter tracking software, like, mm -hmm. um, I, you know, that, that is used in campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, and this means that the Democratic Party has us by the balls, basically, mm -hmm. because if we really start rocking the boat in Democratic primaries, it's going to be like, yeah, sorry, you can't has use us our... by the nose. <laughs> is that is that what it is? <laughs> no, <laughs> but they're going to be like, sorry, you can't you can't use our, our act blue software or whatever anymore. You know, you're then we're screwed. Right. Because mm -hmm. our entire hey, locked out like the Sanders campaign was right. locked out by the Clintonites right. in the Democratic Party. Yeah. And so 2016. And so this is a proposal that that um, we also talked about in the article. I'm not an expert on it, but basically we need to be developing our own alternatives to mm -hmm. this to the software suite. And we need to control that and we need to mm -hmm. control the data that that is therein mm -hmm. um, so that when push comes to shove and we're actually ready to start talking about a split mm -hmm. from the Democrats, we don't have to worry about this. Mm -hmm. Like we'll have been building our own voter we'll universe. Get rid of excuses and, to right. stop from breaking because we're dependent on them. That yeah. needs to become independent. I want to add another one to the list of guarantees. And this comes up in the article actually in a in a in a passage i don't know if you wrote it or who wrote it but yeah. it's it's actually really nice i think it's well written i mean the article is well written but this passage in particular i want to read because i think it's really good but i'd add to the list you know if you want to prove that you're not just the democratic party then you need to actually not just be coextensive with democrats like if everyone in your group is a de facto democrat you know intentions aside then you're basically the Democratic Party. Yeah. And so if you want to prove that you're not, you need non-Democrats in your party and you need to to run and non for non you need to run for office as a Republican. Right. Or as something else. Yeah. And this you have to diversify the how do I put it? Portfolio. As it were. You know. <laughs> Yeah. This is essential, is it not? It is essential. And I didn't actually write that part, but I agree entirely with it. I mean, um, and it's important to be clear, you know, yes, we need to be running third party candidates. We need to be running independents. Yes. But we need to be running Republicans. Right. We need to be very Why? clear on that point, because what's going to happen is that people are going to say, oh, yeah, we should be opportunistic. We should use the Democratic ballot line and any other ballot line. Do you, but, mean, do you include the Republican ballot line? And a lot of times they yeah. don't. They don't want to. They, they don't want to. They don't want to think about that because if you're running, you know, in spite of the fact that the Republican ballot line or the Republican primary electorate is the second largest universe of, you know, working class primary voters in the country, right? Mm -hmm. And every year it becomes slightly more at parity with the Democratic mm -hmm. primary electorate in terms of working class composition. Um, so there's a huge, huge reservoir of voters in Republican primaries, mm -hmm. um, you know, and. If we're not running in Republican primaries, we're not reaching them. Mm 
mm-hmm. and we need to be reaching them because you can't have a working class party that just kind of writes off 45 percent of the working class, you know, as as kind of not even worth talking to, because then you have to rely on other. Um, well, I don't uh, think you can even win if you I mean, yeah, you can't even win if you don't. You involve can't these people. or you, you can't win as a working class. Yeah. You can't win as a working class party. You wind up relying on kind of the the existing Democratic primary electorate, which is the coalition changes. Right. You're missing a whole half of your coalition. Right. Um, and, and kind of um, like I, I think I don't know if that kind of caps the article. There might be something else you want to talk about, but kind of like um, on that point of um, you have to diversify the portfolio. You have to run on the Democratic Party line. Um, you have to run on the Republican Party line or an independent line. You have to, you know, get to a point where you're advocating for all working class people and kind of some of the arguments that come out. Even of ones it, you don't like or right, agree with about right. it. Regardless, even people you do agree, there are going to be people you do agree with. And, and, and what I'm saying. They're going to be people you dislike, too. But if you, you claim to be advocating the working class, it doesn't what matter. What I'm saying is that there are people in these Republican jurisdictions yep. that are people you agree with mm-hmm. that are like, let's say like one of the, the, we can get to, if you want to get to the arguments that came out of this, let's say like there are a lot of the Republican party is heinous. Yeah. <laughs> Their platform, you know, it, it just gives lip service to working class concerns. And what they do is they immiserate large portions of the population that live inside of their jurisdiction. <laughs> We're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, voting rights for, you know, minority, uh, you know, peoples, you know, black people uh, specifically. We're talking about, um, you know, a uh, 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 choice for women's rights. You know, we're, we're we're talking we're talking about all of those issues, and if you leave yourself off of the Republican Party line, you leave those people and their issues at the mercy of a Republican Party in its current form that is sadistic. Well, I think, but point. I think a lot of leftists would say, "Fuck them, they're lost anyways." And I they're, would just say that that's a strategic failure. Yeah, I mean, it's a strategic failure. Um, so, you know, and, and this kind of argument boiled up within CU after we published the article, which is based, and I think it's a very healthy argument to be having, which is what does it mean to be running on the Republican line, right? Like, right. you're, you're going to be doing, we've basically everyone agrees that you're probably not going to be doing it as much as you're running on the Democratic line, just for logistical re- reasons. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be doing it mostly in air, parts of the country where the Democratic line is so toxic that working class people just aren't in that primary, you know, and those parts of the country do exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, partic- and I, you know, they're growing to a larger and larger extent as there's been a kind of shift of, um, you know, rural Midwestern and Appalachian working class people away from the his- their historical affinity to the Democrats and towards the Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. And so you've got parts of the country now where the majority of working class primary voters are in actually in the Republican primary. Mm-hmm. Um, And so if you are going to be running in the Republican primary, you have to be cognizant of the fact that this primary electorate has a different set of baseline beliefs on a whole host of issues. And (coughs) it's important to clarify that a lot of the time the Republican primary electorate is not actually that 
much more right wing on economic issues right. right than the democratic primary electorate mm-hmm. um in a given region right and so you can safely run on medicare for all and higher minimum wage and unions and so forth and, and if you're doing working class socialist politics that's your bread and butter anyway right. that's Go your bread and it. butter anyway right but there are going to be some issues where the republican primary electorate is significantly to the right of the democratic primary electorate gun control for example mm-hmm. abortion rights a lot of these kind of hot and button culture comp issues um, that and this is because the Democrats and the Republicans have actively cultivated mm-hmm. primary electorates that mm-hmm. views these as the primary cleavages within within mm-hmm. politics. Yeah, right? They use those the way the way that capitalists used to use right. racism. The function is kind of you need to learn how to you you live in a duopoly as far as political right. the political system that you are in. So functionally what you're doing is you're running two uh, single party campaigns. That's what you're living under. You're living under single party rule until you get to the state and the national level. But when you're on the city, the county and the municipal level, you are running single party um, like campaigns, basically. So the, the question is, how do you infiltrate some a place that has single party rule? Right. You're going to have to change that single party right. or you're going to have to uh, interject your platform into that party. Right. And you're going to have to do it in a way that it's it's compatible with the 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 political sensibilities of the people that are already in the, the party culture in that region. Right. And so that means you're going to have to occasionally be willing to be flexible on some certain, in my view, on some certain non non or sorry, on certain peripheral issues that are not integral to your political platform. Um, and so, for example, I think gun control is the easiest one. I think everyone agrees that if you're running in West Virginia, socialist, you should run a pro-gun socialist, right? Like Or a, method- methodologically neutral. You just don't have to, you have to weigh in? Couldn't you just say... Well, I mean, see, that's the question. It's easy to say, oh, just be constructively vague all the time. No, no, mm-hmm. I don't mean be... Because they'll smell the bullshit coming right, a mile right. away. But I'm saying, like, you have to... So, this is a huge amount of people are not in the urban areas. They have different views than you and they're working class. If you claim you're about the working class, then you go there and the only people you have to work with are the people who actually exist. And if you want to win, then you have to work with it. You know, clean hands or no hands. So get your damn hands dirty. And, you know, these people have certain beliefs and you got to work with it. And if you don't like that, you got two options. You can plug your nose and do what you have to do to win and say something because, after all, representational politics is meant to represent the constituency. Hello. Yep. Or, or you can say, well, as a matter of principle, we're methodologically neutral on this. Like, you know, the Italian Communist Party, World War One. they said, you know, some people want to go into the war. Some people are against it. We, our stance is no stance because mm-hmm. it's an imperial war. There are reasons for, there are reasons against. We're not going to take a stance on this. People criticize them. Okay, criticize. But that's a possibility. You can say, we're not going to take a stance on abortion because this is a lose-lose scenario. We're not going to take a stance on gun control because this is a lose-lose scenario. If your top priorities are political economic gain for the working class. Or not just that, this isn't what our constituency is asking us to address. Well, well, it's something more than that because, because, I mean, you've got your political program. And you're trying to make it real in mm. these regions where these people do have concerns about that. And you have mm. to fed, you have to feel where it's incompatible. Right. And where it's incompatible, I would suggest let's have a policy of methodological neutrality. 
that means I'm not for it. I'm not against. I mean, I've got my opinions. Yeah. But what good would it do for me to stand on the rooftops and blab them? You yeah. Know? Well, I, I would say that that should be an option, right? The, this neutrality, you know, stand should be an option. But I think some of the time that's not going to be enough, right? Like if you're mm-hmm. running in a district um, and I'm, I'm going to use gun control as the example because it's it's sort of less contentious than the other major one, which is abortion. But mm-hmm. if you're running in a district where the electorate is not going to just demand that you not be anti-gun, they're going to demand that you be pro-gun, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want neutrality. Mm-hmm. I want you to be pro-gun 100%. Mm-hmm. In my view, the local branch of the Socialist Party surrogate should have the leeway to say, yeah, we're we're going to run pro-gun candidates. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, what we've been fighting for is is the ability to to hold candidates to account and discipline them. They're going to settle on a stance of disciplining candidates to make sure that they vote in a mm-hmm. pro-gun way. That's just that's what you're going to have mm-hmm. to do in order to be credible with your local electorate. Now, that doesn't mean that's that to say if you want to win. If you want to win, right? That doesn't mean that, of course, that the national party, for some reason, mm-hmm. because it has a pro-gun minority or a pro-life minority, mm-hmm. is suddenly, you know, going to be pro-gun mm-hmm. or pro-life. Like that is that's a totally separate question. Mm-hmm. And a party that wants to compete at the national scale in a country of this size, in my view, and this was contentious within the caucus, but in in my view, this party is going to have to tolerate a large degree of internal diversity and regional diversity when it comes to these kind of culture camp issues. And that means that occasionally a local branch of the party is going to settle on a stance that major it may be bad policy you know it you may be able to make a convincing argument that this stance is actually not good for the working class but you have to weigh that against the alternative which is not getting your candidate elected at and all you might not like it you might right. i mean that's the main thing like you, you you might not like it but i mean the thing is i mean every time there's an, every four years we told to plug your nose and right do the you know vote for mm-hmm. joe biden next time next time Dear leftist, next time you say this is non-negotiable, gun control or bust, ask yourself um, how how rigid you were on your right. principles when it comes right. to the four-year election. Right. I mean, for mm-hmm. for Christ's sake. And and you know the other thing that I'd like to point out is that any socialist party, conceivable socialist party in the United States, is going to have a ton of just crazy middle class urban millennial lunatics Mm -hmm. screeching about how they want this or that weird issue Mm -hmm. and no one is coming along and saying we you know we can't run a pro reparations candidate in some kind of like neighborhood adjoining Harvard University or something where or in Evanston right or in Evanston right like no one is going to say that's unacceptable. So why should we then turn around and say, oh, well, pandering to rural sensibilities is a step too far. We're happy to pander to like weird millennial urban well, because sensibilities. Because it's not politics. It's a sort of social gathering. But I mean, I think the real thing is here. Leftists cannot handle disagreement. Yeah. They just melt down. Yeah. They can't handle disagreement. It's like, okay, Thaddeus, you disagree with me about certain issues. And that's just the way it is. All the time. <laughs> that's just the way it is. Well, and, and that we I was still I was friends. actually I was we very, still have respect. We still have debates. Yeah. We still have trust that the other is gonna be effective. Right. And not be e- we're not like yeah. it's not like, oh, you you well, you don't think XYZ, oh, you're evil. I can't I, talk I, to I will, you anymore. I will I'll say that I, I, was, realm. 
I was very um, impressed by the fact that, you know, Class Unity internally was able to have yeah. a very long debate yeah. about, you know, uh, abortion policy. And, you know, it was it was constructive and it was civil and it was basically fine. And no one stormed out of the yeah, caucus yeah, yeah. in a huff and no one was I expelled. Didn't mean to and, suggest right, that. right. But but I just want to, like, bring that point out, because I think we're the only caucus not just in the DSA, we're the only group on the American left, I think, that could actually do that, that could actually, you know, process, have an internal debate, an open internal debate about an issue like abortion without mm -hmm. some sort of terrible rift or split occurring. And I think that that's the kind of thing that that a working class party needs to be capable of is to 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 set the lines you know, uh, of, of debate such that they are expansive enough that you can have substantial disagreement within the party. Um, and that's a problem for, for, you know, rad libs who are insistent on a certain form of liberal cultural orthodoxy. It's a problem for, you know, trots and other, you know, Leninist groups who are constantly schisming and expelling yeah, they'll people. they'll throw you out for, if you mention Tito or Keynes. Right. Discovered. <laughs> right. <laughs> well. Yeah. And so, you know, I, that, that was really encouraging to me. So I'm, I'm hopeful that that kind of sensibility will prove attractive to, uh, to people, um, because I, you know, I think you're right that leftists are out of the habit of disagreeing. Um, but I, I don't think that means that if you if you give people an organization that allows them to disagree with each other, you know, vociferously that they won't like it. You know, I, I think a lot of it is just that the internal structures that leftist parties and organizations have are too weak to actually maintain spaces of constructive disagreement mm -hmm. for long. They kind of are, are brittle and mm -hmm. the leadership has too much power or the in DSA, it's the opposite problem where like the standards of membership are too vague. So you can expel people, mm -hmm. you know, for basically anything. Oh, personal the, grudges, personal so. grudges or anything. So, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I was, I was happy about the way that that argument went. Mm -hmm. When I read the article, like how, <laughs> How I was informed about this was that there was a conflict around abortion <laughs> rights. Which is so, nowhere mentioned. It's not in the article at all. I, yeah, I was thinking the article was going to be like, okay, because um, usually I try to draw out um, right. the what the other side is kind of where they're coming from. Um, but that wasn't in there. The article seemed pretty <laughs> solid. Like this is just this is just what you have to do. Um, this is a strategy. Yeah, type of thing. Um, you'd you'd think, but you know, in the context of the DSA, a lot of this stuff is going to be super controversial. You sure. know, and not just the Republican ballot line stuff. the The stuff that's going to be most controversial is the stuff that gets to the heart of the patronage, the patronage issue that Dan was we talking. We caught about. controversy by saying we should advocate for an <laughs> eviction moratorium. <laughs> right. So I can imagine a more fluid organization. Yeah having an even bigger conflict around anything. Right. Well, should you be able to be a paid political staffer and be an organizational leadership at the same time? That is going to be, I think, the most controversial point, um, just because all the paid political staffers and DSA leadership are going to freak out about it. You and can pry my job patronage <laughs> from my right. cold dead hands. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no! <laughs> Right. Not yeah, my but career that, trajectory. That's important, you know. <laughs> like politics shouldn't be a career. Um, well, yeah. I mean, ultimately, it would be nice if we had something like you know, after your after your after your service is done, you go into a retirement where you have a sort of 
average wage and you're right. not allowed to work for anybody else for the rest of your life. Right. So, so there's no more of that motivation. Right. That would be optimal. But uh, yeah, the article was good to me. Um, I have no more questions. Um, just a shout out to everybody who's working hard, you know, in CU and in DSA in general, who's actually active. You know, I appreciate everything that people do. I, you know, appreciate actual debate. Um, and there doesn't necessarily need to be hostility. You know, I'm not a civility advocate, but <laughs> you don't have to hate each other. Um, you know, just because you disagree and, um, just cause sh- you kill babies, you should listen more. <laughs> you should listen less to the talk and pay more attention to the people who are actually applying themselves to action. Um, and you know, don't ever knock a person's strategy without implementing your alternative strategy. Otherwise you're just full of shit in my opinion. Um, that's 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 all I'll say. All right. So for my last word, actually, I'm just going to read a passage from this um, article, which I thought, um, you, you know, you study literature for a while, it rots your brain, you start to enjoy eloquent formulations of ideas. I'm just going to read it out, and then I'll leave the last word to you, and maybe you give some reflections. We are arguing that ballot lines should be decided by the Socialist Party at the state and local level. Such a tactic would prove beneficial even if employed in moderation, as willingness to run on a Republican ballot line if it serves socialist goals would clearly delineate how our socialist project differs from more traditional attempts to work within the Democratic Party. This combined with running independence would create a real outside to the inside-outside strategy. Running candidates on the Republican line would establish an unambiguously antagonistic relationship to both the to Democratic and Republican parties as interchangeable capitalist parties. On the outside, this would be crucial for persuading and mobilizing the working class. On the inside, it lends friction to the revolving door between us and the Democratic Party's consultant class. We cannot illustrate this antagonism with slogans about compassion, community, or grassroots ideals. If we are unwilling to antagonize our opponents, why should we be trusted? And who really is the opponent? Not only will running candidates on all ballot lines where politically expedient bring our political message to an essential section of the working class, but it will illustrate that we are actually doing something different, not just saying something different. This may be our only option to reach those who were understandably so disaffected after voting for Obama that they gave up on the Democratic Party for good and in some cases even voted for Trump. Yeah, and that... that um paragraph I did not write, <laughs> but yeah, I think it's a very strong one. And, you know, I, I think overall it's just uh, when, when people on the left argue the ballot line question, the, are the, are we Democrats or are we not? A lot of the time it's um, a fundamentally stupid argument about stuff that doesn't matter. Like, you know, if you try to figure out from listening to like socialist alternative people, why they think um, Bernie Sanders was fine, but like other people who run on the Democratic line are not fine. Like it, it doesn't make any sense because that's not where the core of the disagreement is, right? The core of the disagreement is not which ballot line are you using? The core of the disagreement is, are you organizationally independent from not just the Democratic Party, but the major the establishments of the major parties in general, right? And 
there is a tremendous amount of gravitational pull if you're running on the Democratic ballot line because you're competing in Democratic primaries. You're competing for the Democratic primary electorate. There's a great deal of gravitational attraction towards the Democratic establishment. Um, and you have to isolate the ways in which that attraction um, will be exerted on your candidates. And you have to develop procedures and and structures and um, safeguards to prevent that from occurring and prevent your elected politicians from defecting to liberalism. Um, and so what we've tried to do is put together a set of proposals that isolate those specific areas um, where uh, it's easy for us to lose control of our political message and try to make that harder. Try to make it so that candidates, you know, have less leeway to freelance, make it so that um, uh, DSA leadership has less incentive to um, subordinate the needs of the organization to the needs of whoever their political masters are. Um, try to make it so that um, we're not joined at the hip to the Democratic Party and its primary electorate. We have the capacity to. Um, run in other party primaries, including Republican primaries, and we have a long-term strategy for getting us to the point where we don't need to run on the Democratic Party ballot line anymore because we've reformed the electoral system. Um, and I think, you know, if if we can get people in DSA, I think there's a lot of latent support for, um, for an eventual uh, independent workers' party. Um, it's just that the proposals circulating in DSA right now, by and large, um, are, are they're fake proposals. They're not actually geared towards founding an independent workers party. They're geared towards using that as kind of uh, a branding maneuver where it's like, oh, yeah, we're the radical Marxists. Like we want a third party. And mm -hmm. how are you going to get there? Well, you know, whatever. We'll just figure it out. Right. Um, I think there's a lot of people in DSA who. Um, in the aftermath of the Bernie campaign, particularly Bernie 2020, are they've learned the lesson that I that we should have learned a long time ago, which is that the Democratic Party is not a valid long term home for a for a, for a workers movement. Um, we should be in it on a temporary basis just because it's it's the most opportune place to be organizing. But we need to have. We need to have a, a strategy that we can follow step by step to get us to a point where we can cut ties. Um, and we need a timeline. Yeah, we, we need a timeline. We need a, a sequential set of reforms to fight for and metrics to meet and internal capacities to build so that we can say, OK, we can discipline candidates. You know, we have a, a new electoral system. It's time to go. You know, like it's it's time to run as a third party candidate. Um, and if you think about like just what a game changer it would be to be able to do what, uh, for example, the former Labor Party of Minnesota was able to do, which was they ran candidates in Democratic and Republican Party primaries, putting forward basically the same economic message um, to both electorates. So they were influencing both electorates simultaneously. And then eventually they were able to, you know run as their own independent party and and start winning seats. Um, we can do that, but we're not going to be able to do that if we're too weak, you know, in terms of party discipline to actually enforce our platform and to actually, you know, keep our messaging straight with, you know, with, with these electorates. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's um, we're hopeful that this kind of conversation will 
sort of make regular DSA members realize that, yeah, there, there are actually steps that the organization could be taking to, to, to found a workers' party. All right. Thank you, Jamal. All Thank right. you very much. Thank you very much.